Hello, it's Robert Bathurst here. I was one of the first guests on My Time Capsule, and Mike has asked me to tell you that you can now listen to the podcast ad-free by subscribing to Acast Plus. Details of how to join are in the description of each episode. Mike says it's very reasonably priced. In fact, Mike says it's a bargain. And who am I to disagree? Locked here in his cellar. Anyway, for a small subscription, Acast Plus, My Time Capsule, ad-free. Free. Unlike me. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, and welcome to My Time Capsule. My name's Mike Fenton-Stevens, and My Time Capsule is the podcast where I ask my guests to tell me the five things from their life that they'd like to put in a time capsule. They pick four things that they cherish, but they also pick one thing they'd like to get rid of, something they want to bury in the ground and never think of again. Now, occasionally on My Time Capsule, we release an episode which is different from my usual chat. This episode is one of them, because my guest is my brother, Patrick Stevens. We actually recorded this episode some time ago, when I was testing the idea to see if it would work as a podcast. After over 200 episodes, I'm pretty sure now that it does, and it seems to have legs. But this was an experiment, and we all somewhat forgot about it. Until recently, when my son and producer, John, listened to it again and suggested I did the same. I really enjoyed it, so we hope that you might too. I'll leave it to Patrick to tell you about his life and career, just to say that he's slightly younger than me and obviously slightly better looking. In his head. This was recorded at an office overlooking Trafalgar Square, so there's more background noise than usual, but we didn't worry about that at the time as we thought this would never be released. But here it is. Here is my little brother and his extraordinary life, and the five things he'd like to put in a time capsule. So, Patrick, welcome to my time capsule. Thank you. For people who don't actually know you, and I'd be amazed if anybody listening doesn't know who you are. It's hard to imagine. But you're my brother. I am. I'm just reminding you of that. Yeah, yeah. I've known you for what seems like a lifetime. (laughs) Seems longer than that to me. (laughs) So tell us about what you've been doing in your life. 
so we get an idea of uh, who's talking to us. So I'm your much younger brother, <laughs> and I am a lawyer. I'm currently the director of rule of law in a company which tries to develop international justice and human rights in a number of countries around the world. Um, but it has been quite a journey to get to that place. So I qualified as a lawyer after I went to college in Wales, inspired by our dad. And then I went to work with dad as a criminal defence lawyer because we'd grown up on stories of injustice and corrupt police and that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and fight for justice. But after a short while there and things were changing and I could see them changing for the better, I started to realise that I could do more for justice by being a prosecutor. So I joined the Crown Prosecution Service. For a moment I thought you were going to say prostitute. Some might say I did, uh-huh. but I was a member of the Crown Prosecution Service and I worked there for seven years, but I felt like I needed a new challenge. And so I got a secondment up into headquarters mm. and I went into headquarters. Uh, I agreed to go there in August 2001 and I arrived on September the 13th, 2001, two days after 9-11. Mm. And for the next six years... I was a senior counterterrorism prosecutor for the Crown Prosecution Service doing some of the biggest cases that this country had ever seen. Mm. And that really changed everything in terms of my career. I was then invited to help set up the International Division of the Crown Prosecution Service, and I became the head of that in 2008. And then for 10 years, I led the International Division of the Crown Prosecution Service, where we were placing lawyers into embassies and high commissions around the world to work with countries around the world to hopefully improve their justice system, their human rights, in order to make their countries a bit better. But more importantly, as the effort was funded by the UK government, it was very clearly focused on trying to make the UK better and safer. You worked under Keir Starmer. He was the DPP, wasn't he? I worked for five years under Keir Starmer, and he was a pioneering leader in that and in many things. I remain a good friend of Keir's and can only say good things about him. Mm, I bet. Well, who knows? Future Prime Minister of this country. I would like to think so. Mm. And then after 10 years, it was time to move on. And I decided that the international work was something that I needed to keep doing. It was something I was very passionate about. And so I went into this great company called Optima, who are doing amazing things about clearing landmines, clearing bombs around the world, Mm -hmm. but wanted to develop into the rule of law space, thought that I'd done it in the CPS, I could do it again in the private sector, and it's uh, it's going very well. Do you finally get to fly business class? Do you know, quite the opposite. It's all about the bottom line in, in the private sector. <laughs> you timed I, everything wrong. Yeah, absolutely. I was, I've was. i said that many times. You should have done it all in the 80s. I should have been born in the 40s. That's when I should have been a senior civil servant. But no, no, I thoroughly enjoyed all of my time. Incredibly challenging, incredibly difficult incredibly stressful moments Mm. but I've been very lucky in the opportunities that I've had and the things that I've done I used to say when I was doing the terrorism cases that we were doing three things a day that you wouldn't have done in your career as a prosecutor I've sat with prime ministers I've sat with ministers I've sat with chief justices attorneys general all around the world and been able to discuss with them what they may or may not think is a good idea for their country. Mm. It's an incredibly privileged position to be in. Uh, well, privileged, but also frightening, I would think. You know, I mean, because actually you are suggesting things to people that if they're wrong and they go with your suggestion, the blame's sort of going to come back to you, isn't it? Yeah, but one of the beauties of getting old is that you have genuine experience if you've done the same thing for a long time and you do know what works 
why it works and how it works. Oh, I look forward to that. <laughs> and so the genuine approach that we're able to take, and I was able to take in the international division, was to look back on the reforms that there had been. going, And it was very interesting. And I've thought about this many times. You go right back to the reasons why I went into the law in the first place, the stories that Dad used to tell us mm. about what it was like. Well, that's what it's still like in a lot of places and worse. And so the motivation is still there for the same reasons. Yes. And the solutions are the solutions that we've seen in the UK mm. going over 30 years. And I've, I've lived through those. I've worked with those. I understand those. And the other thing is criminal justice and criminal justice reform is not a journey that starts at A and ends at Z. It's always ongoing. Mm. You ask anybody in this country and they'll say, there's so much wrong with criminal justice. There's so many things that need improving. And so none of us can be complacent. None of us can think, right, we've finished. We know what we're doing. We're just trying to get others to be as good as us. It's not about that. It's no. just trying to make it a bit better. Yes. And you just keep trying to take steps forward. Yes, because that world you, that you talk about, that our dad talked about, the world before Miranda, yeah. where it seemed to be a free-for-all. Yeah. The police, if you look back on it, almost seemed to be their own criminal gang who were just fighting to stay on top. It's certainly beyond doubt that there was very little regulation, very little rules, and there was corruption going back 40, 50 years. It was pretty endemic in the system. Mm. And that, in my experience, is not the case at all now. Things have changed dramatically. And there is a whole combination of things. And societies don't just change, they are made to change. And then change becomes habit, and habit becomes character and culture. And it takes a long time to do that. But there's no one person or one group of people that are intrinsically better than any other group of people. And that's where I think a lot of people in any sort of international relations... They start, they think we're somehow superior. Yes. We're not superior. We're just in a different place and we might be very lucky that we are. Yes. And also it's a very fragile, thin line. Those things can change. Yes, indeed. As we see at the moment. Well, that's brilliant. I, I didn't know any of that. <laughs> I saw you were a road sweeper. Yeah, well, I like to play it called uh, incognito. Keep your cards to your chest. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so I have this time capsule yeah. and we're going to put into it Things from your life that you treasure or enjoy or even just wish you could see again. The only addenda to that is that one of them is something that you specifically didn't enjoy and would like to get rid of, really. Lock away. So tell me, what is your first thing that you would like to put into the time capsule? Well, I am passionate about many things. Too passionate, some say, at times. But two of the things that I'm most passionate about are music and football and I tried to think about how could I pick a moment as a Crystal Palace fan there are so many moments <laughs> all disappointing <laughs> that I really don't want to live again <laughs> but one or two no quite a few that were euphoric and any of those moments would be valid and I thought of Selhurst Park as a place mm. but the draw of music as well made me think Wembley Stadium and so, Wembley Stadium, not a place that Crystal Palace have been to that often. Well, you might say that, and you'd probably be right. I, I, but I am right, I think. Two cup finals. One when I was 26, one when I was 52. Ah. So everybody, get your money on when I'm 78. <laughs> Crystal Palace are going to win the cup. They'll lose to Manchester United, of course, because that's what always happens. But those two trips were amazing for different reasons and uh, the second one particularly because I went with Charlie my son 
And for one glorious minute when we scored, it was the perfect moment of my life. I would say that that would be the moment, but it was so short-lived and it was followed with such disappointment that I don't think that can be the moment. But also, Crystal Palace have been there in the unforgettable Zenith Data Systems. Who could forget that? That extra time win against Everton. I'm glad you reminded me of it because I had forgotten it. Something that has gone down in the annals of history. Again, I thought it was a different word. Yeah, I almost said it. Um, (laughs) But the other thing about Wembley Stadium is it isn't just about football. It's also been about music. And some amazing gigs that I've seen there. I went with you, I think, but also a number of your friends to see Simon and Garfunkel and sat in the Royal Box. In fact, you might not have... I don't think I was. I don't think you did go there. No, no. It was your ticket I had. Yes, probably. And sat in the Royal Box because Harvey Goldsmith was presenting and I think he was then your agent or something. Uh, That's right, yes. And And I I would have been working somewhere like the Battersea Arts Centre or something. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, not with the usual crowd because I sat next to Helen Atkinson Wood and I remember meeting Helen Fielding. Very good friend of Helen's. We went to her flat for coffee or drinks before the show. We went up in the Royal Box lift and sat there and watched Simon and Garfunkel, which was amazing. This is my ticket, isn't it? This is your ticket. You bastard. Yeah, I know. But even more than that, July the 13th, 1985. Mm Mm-hmm. I was at Live Aid. Oh, fantastic. So that was the most amazing experience. That's a real reason for having Wembley Stadium in a time capsule. Absolutely. When you put everything together, Wembley Stadium has been a joyous place for me. So many wonderful things. But Live Aid stands out as as that moment in time, moment of a generation. Mm. And I was lucky to be there. Tell me about that day then. I mean, so you travelled to London to go to Live Aid excitedly. I went with my then best mate, Al, and I had three spare tickets (laughs) because, of course, you will know, our dad could get a ticket to anything. I know. My girlfriend, my now wife, didn't come and her brother didn't come and you didn't come. I was doing a play. I couldn't come. You told me that your agent at the time and his girlfriend needed a ticket, so I met them outside and I gave them two tickets And I went in with a spare ticket in my pocket. Good Lord. And I walked in and I can remember walking down the terraces at Wembley and just getting onto the covered turf as Rockin' All Over the World was introduced and Status Quo started. And we were right at the back and the audience started clapping in time with the beat and it was so loud. You couldn't hear anything except just the clapping of the crowd and everybody singing the chorus to Rockin' All Over the World. And it was amazing. And I thought, this is going to be an amazing day. Mm. And for the first couple of acts, I stayed in that place. But then me and my friend said, right, we've got to get further down. And we we went down. And if you picture the the scene, there's a big black box in the middle, which was the sound desk. And we went down to the left-hand side. As you look towards the stage, we went down to the left-hand side of the sound desk and stood just in front of the sound desk towards the left-hand side and watched the rest of the bands. And my mate was always a huge David Bowie fan. Mm. And I was always a big Queen fan. Mm. And he didn't like Queen. And he kept going on about, you wait till we see Bowie, you wait till we see Bowie. And I said, yeah, but you wait till you see Freddie Mercury live. And Bowie came on and was amazing. And we were all, he was saying, it was brilliant. Freddie Mercury came on with that now legendary performance. And at that time, one of my least favourite Queen songs was Radio Gaga. Mm. And I think they go into it in about the second number. And then he said, all we hear is... And everybody put their hands in the air and did the clap in time. 
I'd probably seen that video once. I didn't know I was going to do that, and I just did it. Mm. And I looked around, and the whole of Wembley was doing it at the same time, and I thought, oh, my goodness, I've never experienced anything like that before. It was incredible. Freddie just had the place in the palm of his hand. It was amazing, wasn't it? It was amazing. And I turned around to Al afterwards, and I said, well, and he said, fair enough. That is the best thing I've ever seen. Followed by Adamant. Yeah. Can't win them all. Adamant, the one person who decided it was a moment for new material. Mm, big mistake. Yeah. It was an amazing day. You 2 bursting onto the international stage. I'd seen you 2 live before. I remember you talking about seeing you 2 very early in their yeah. career and saying that you thought that Bono was one of the most enigmatic yeah. performers you'd ever seen. And he, he did the same. He came out and he seized that moment and transformed their entire career. Absolutely amazing. And there was also another great moment that isn't quite so remembered by those that weren't there. But someone had a teddy bear and during the act they were throwing it up in the air. Mm. And as it would go in the air, everyone would cheer and then it would go down and then everyone would boo until someone threw it back up in the air and everyone would cheer. <laughs> well, of course, being in the audience, you experienced all that bit in between acts. Yeah, 20-minute gaps. Where we, watching it on television, I did watch a lot of it on television until I had to go to the theatre, you'd come back to the studio, you'd see interviews yeah, yeah, of yeah. people or you'd see Belt Geldof or they'd show you a video. So you were standing there having to entertain yourself for 20 minutes in yeah. between it. Uh, unless, of course, Griffiths Jones and Mel Smith came on and then you had to entertain yourself. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes, so it was a teddy bear that did that. And <laughs> at one point, I remember, it went up in the air and it fell into the sound desk and the boos were going around the whole of Wembley <laughs> and, and they didn't throw it back out. And so the whole of Wembley started going... Teddy, Teddy, Teddy. <laughs> At which point, eventually someone in the sound desk chucks it out and the celebrations were almost as good as when Crystal Palace scored that goal against Manchester United. <laughs> it was a fantastic moment. That is fantastic. Well, I have no qualms at all about taking Wembley Stadium as it was and putting it into the time capsule. This is a big time capsule. Yes, yeah, it needs to be. So what's, um, what's your second item? Well... I think we, we talked about my job a little and it was completely influenced by our dad and the stories that I heard mm. from when he was... Perhaps uh, tell us, well, I mean, for people who don't know, we both know what our dad did. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I'm, I'm not sure that we know all that our dad did, frankly, no. because it was an amazing career. And I think one of the things that intrigues me and I, I wish I was able to talk to him about now, now that I appreciate quite what might have been involved in some of this stuff, I would love to be able to discuss that detail with him. But as you well know, he defended Christine Keeler in the Profumo scandal. So that was a story that I grew up on and a legend that I grew up on. And that was probably the biggest case of his generation, even though he was much more known as someone who defended very serious criminals. I remember him always just writing briefs for barristers on the most awful murder cases or enormous armed robberies, and it just seemed very everyday to me. Yeah, and I remember sitting in the kitchen chatting to him one night, and he showed me some photos of people running away from a bank with guns, and he said to me, look at those pictures, they're going to be famous in a year's time. Mm. And in a year's time when somebody called George Davis in South London was convicted of armed robbery. Those very pictures were the pictures I remember them being run in the Daily Mirror and the, the centre pages. And then, of course, George Davis' is innocent campaign got out and, and they climbed up 
I think, Nelson's Column, which is very near where we are now, mm. uh, with a banner, and they cut up the pitch at Headingley, and eventually the Home Secretary gave George Davis a pardon. And I remember Dad telling me a story about George Davis because there was somebody at the time who was in prison for poisoning people, someone called Graham Young, who was known as the Bovingdon Poisoner. Mm. And Dad always said how when he had to go into, I think it was Wormwood Scrubs, after George Davis had been convicted and given something like 18 years in prison, he had to go in to advise him about his appeal. And he said to him, how are you doing, George? And he said, Harry, you are never going to guess who they have got serving the tea in here. (laughs) He said, only Graham Young, the poisoner. (laughs) He said, I walked up and he said, want a cup of tea, George? (laughs) Thank you very much. I'm fine. (laughs) That's brilliant. Uh, The thing I always think about, Dad, that we don't really talk about is that he never actually qualified as a solicitor. No. He never became officially a solicitor. And yet, as we both remember, at his funeral, Jeremy Hutchinson, or Lord Hutchinson, who was the barrister who defended Christine Keeler, told me that he thought that Dad was the best instructing solicitor in the country. Yeah. So as a solicitor's clerk, he was writing extraordinary briefs yes, for people. And if you, if you remember... Um, Dad's 70th birthday where we did that This Is Your Life and Jeremy Hutchinson did a piece to camera that was screened that night. He said he wanted to put on record without doubt everything he had achieved in his career he owed to our dad. It's extraordinary. Yeah. A working class boy from the docks Yeah, who ended up uh, instructing extraordinary people. I mean, of course, Jeremy Hutchinson was being incredibly modest at that moment and humble, but the irony was that that was one of the great untold love stories because Dad, who was not a man who appreciated others doing things better than he did... No, not really, no. um, He unequivocally adored Jeremy Hutchinson and always said he was the best that he ever saw and said that the speech that he sat behind him when he made in the Christine Keeler case was the greatest speech he ever heard in a courtroom. Mm. It's a joyous thing, isn't it, to know that connection? And also, I've never been so honoured as when Jeremy Hutchinson turned up at Dad's funeral. Yeah. Because that meant going out of London and travelling to come to this little church in Orpington and to make that effort. But this endures even today. I go to drinks party where there might be very old people from barristers. When they find out who I am, they come and talk to me about Dad. So Dad did one of the cases of his generation and ironically or maybe not I ended up doing one of the cases of my generation which was the prosecution of Paul Burrell mm. for the theft of clothes from Diana which had a similar Ferrari around it and which was gave me a, a bit of an insight into what it must have been like for dad I mean perhaps the press wasn't quite so lively as it might be now but how that resonated and how the Burrell case resonated into the royal family and wider was had such analogies, and I've always been struck by that particular thing, and, and, and found it quite remarkable. And only you know, wish again, it was another thing that I wish Dad had, had been able to to see and 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 enjoyed from the other side. Mm. But when I was doing that case, we had to go and look at the exhibits at one point, and it was the first time that I'd met the barrister that was prosecuting it for us. And actually, he was from Bermondsey. This barrister. Uh, very unusual. Very unusual. Um, uh, but we were talking, I said, oh, my father was from Bermondsey. In fact, he was a, a managing clerk in a solicitor's firm. And he stopped and paused and he said, Patrick Stevens. He said, was your father Harry Stevens? And I said, yes. And he said, 
oh my goodness, he said, I had no idea I'm in the presence of royalty. <laughs> he said, true. your father is a legend. That's amazing. Yeah. That's a wonderful thing. Oh, and, and another one, and um, <laughs> this always gets me slightly emotional, but, and I'm getting emotional, <laughs> but I did a, my first big terrorist case, which finished successfully, and the sentencing had happened, and I was leaving the old Bailey, um, which comes on to the item that I want to take into the capsule. Thank goodness for that, because yes, we've been no. chatting away with we no could, idea what it is. Could be here for a long time. Um, but I was coming down the steps of the Old Bailey and a man ran up to me and said, Patrick, you don't know me, but I knew your dad. He said, I'm the press reporter from the Old Bailey. And he said, your dad would be very proud. Sorry. That's all right. <laughs> You've got the Stevens emotion comes out. Mm. I know. It comes out of you easily. Bang, like that. It's <laughs> extraordinary. What do you think it is? Do you think because I've, do you think I've learned to control my emotions better, because because of my job, that actually I, I I spend a lot of time being someone else or taking myself out of myself, as it were, and and so I've done I've stood in and been the vicar of friends, dear friends' funerals, yeah, and gone through the whole thing without crying, and I'm very disappointed with myself that I didn't read the oration that I wrote for Dad at his funeral. Yeah. I've, I've always been disappointed that I didn't believe that I could stand yeah. up and read it, and I wish I had. I don't know what it is, because I can... I mean, I did the oration at Mum's funeral, didn't yeah. I? And that was, you know, and that was in such And as a professional lawyer, you have this ability to... You must have this ability to yeah. attach yourself. So I can do that, and that's probably what it is, is you put on an act, don't you? You steal yourself, you put your foot on a a persona and you get through something in, uh, or you put on a performance. Mm. Um, but when I'm not performing, then the emotions are close to the surface. Yeah. So the, the item you'd like to put into the time capsule is the old Bailey. It's the old Bailey. Wow. It's an amazing building. It's beautiful to look at. It resonates with so much of my memories of Dad. I've got lots of great friends, loads of great times that I've had there, amazing cases. So it reminds me of a lot of my working life. And even now, when we're dealing with people that are coming to this country to learn about the British justice system, we will always try to get them a morning at the Old Bailey so mm. they can see it, because it's one of the most famous legal institutions in the world. Yes. And a place of high drama. I worked just briefly in your sphere, and uh, I always found the Old Bailey quite frightening. Maybe it's because the very first time I went there, I was met by the barrister and we went straight down to the cells, into that place that nobody else goes. And I found the whole process of then walking by and seeing the man go up the steps into court. Yeah. And then walking into court and seeing this man in the court, in this beautiful panelled room, yeah. and thinking that he'd come from this horrible yeah, yeah, yeah. place below. I found the whole thing really frightening. That's interesting. Yeah, I found lots of aspects of... What we did, intimidating or frightening at times, because it is so serious and you get up close and personal to some very serious issues and some serious matters. I didn't find that aspect of it frightening, although I, I did, I never doubted the horrors of what imprisonment really meant for people. Mm. That was something that I always thought about. These people that I saw get long prison sentences, either when I was a defence person or a, or a prosecutor. I never took that stuff lightly at all. But I was there when the Birmingham Six were released. 
Wow. And I remember standing outside court with those crowds, being part of those crowds and watching them come out. Dad was there when the IRA bombed it. Oh, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? No. no. I think it's because you never talked about it. Yeah. But he told me, and this is in this short period that I worked with him, I remember him walking there, and I said to him, you were here, weren't you? And he said, yeah. And I said, oh, you were lucky. Did you get out? And he said, I came out of the court, and then I realised I'd left my bag inside. So I went back into the court, and there was a loud thump. And I came back out, and all the windows had been blown in, and there was blood everywhere. Amazing. Yeah. And there's still a piece of glass embedded in the wall in the Old Bailey, which they keep as a memorial, as a reminder. Yes. Of, of well, that would have reminded him every day of that uh, yeah. the serendipity or the extraordinary coincidence of just turning back for that moment. Because uh, almost without doubt, he would have been in that main hall that now has all the large windows, but the curtains are, are yes. that safety netting, yes, aren't they? Yes, yes, yes. But that was put in afterwards. Yes. Before that was just clear glass and it yeah. just flew everywhere. Terrible, terrible thing. I know. Yeah, so it features throughout my entire life, really, mm. um, and, and still does. And um, great joy and great sorrow um, and many things in between. Oh, right. OK, so we're going to take the Old Bailey. I think we need to leave a replica there so that other people can use it. Yeah. Because it's a useful place to have. Maybe a prefab hut. It's just a little bit, something like that. But we're, we're going to take the Old Bailey, we're going to put it in your time capsule. There we go. It's nestled up next to Wembley Stadium. There we are. That's number two. So let's move on. Let's move on to number three. Sadly, we do have to leave this chat for a moment so we can send some enticing adverts your way. See you soon. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome back. Let's get straight back to our comfortable yet noisy room by Admiralty Arch and find out what else Patrick Stevens would like to put in his time capsule. Okay, I've been trying to think of different things, and there's so much that there's so much that I would want to do. I've, I've, I love life. I seize life, and there's so much of it I would like to seize back. I'm an archivist. I think part of me being an archivist is 
trying to keep alive those memories that we're talking about now. You know, I think that's something that's deep in my psyche. And it's very hard to try and think about a moment in time that would perhaps encapsulate all of that. And I'm almost changing this as, as I'm speaking. So <laughs> I was thinking of my wedding day. In fact, mine and my wife's wedding day. Oh, she was there as yeah, well? Yeah, she was there as well. That's useful. Um, which you may remember because you were best man. That goes without saying. Yeah, of course. And I was thinking of, of that because it was easily one of the best days I've ever had and and everybody seemed to really enjoy it. And everybody was there and, and family and friends. And it was one of those perfect moments where everybody was there. The weather and, was gorgeous as well, wasn't it? Yeah, and we had had a very quiet night with friends. Very quiet night till about four o'clock in the morning. Yes, and I had made the mistake of going to bed rather the worse for wear the night before my wedding, waking up the next day not feeling my best, but full of the joys of spring, and then going back to the room with you to get changed, to get ready to leave for the church, and you got ready first, and then you turned to me and said, right, I'm ready, I'll leave you to get on, where are the rings? <laughs> and I suddenly froze because I thought, I have absolutely no idea where the rings are. I know when I left Lynn at the church last night and she said to me, those are the rings, whatever you do, don't lose them. <laughs> I then went into a bar and eight hours later, I came out. Don't lose those rings if it's the last thing you do. And, and then, sure enough, the it would have been the last thing you'd done. And I started just going into a blind panic. And then I thought, I wonder if I put them in a safety deposit box. And I ran over to the reception. And I remember seeing all my friends all getting into a minibus to go to my wedding. (laughs) And thinking, I can't find the rings. And was really panicking and, and just sitting there with my head in my hands. And you were saying, don't worry, we'll go into Chepstow and buy a joke ring. Lynn will love love it. She'll love it. And then fortunately... The wedding organiser, who'd been searching high and low, found them in a bag in the reception that were with some presents for some other people for later on, and they were in a box in the bag. Of course, perfectly safe. Yeah, and that was the start of the day, and it it went up from there, and it was fantastic. (laughs) And you made a very amusing speech at my expense. It's the job of the best man. Absolutely. I Um, don't really remember the speech, strangely enough. I remember the opening of the speech, where I pretended that my agent had rung me and I had to leave because they were offering me money. That was my first joke, I think. Thank you all for coming. Goodbye. Yes. But I went on, didn't I? Yes. I made... started off, because at the time I was dyeing my hair, by saying, I'd like to say some thank yous. My first thank you is to Claire Old Colour Dye for Patrick's hair today. <laughs> oh, right. See, look, you, you like <laughs> it even now. I know. I, I'm enjoying that joke. And you were talking about all the things that I was, um, and ironically, and you were saying that... Um, I was impulsive because I met Lynn only 11 and a half years ago <laughs> and today they're getting married. It's a crazy whirly gig of a romance. And that became a catchphrase amongst my friends. We were a crazy whirly gig of a romance. <laughs> That's nice. And there was a moment there, actually, that we all went back in the bar afterwards and had a sing-song. Yeah. And it's funny, really, because... And really, only one person would have led that. Yeah, and that's, and, and, and everyone's going, come on, we're waiting. We're waiting for the, you Cockneys. We've heard all about you, they were saying. We've heard you, your dad can sing. Come on. And he got up and he started singing a song. And it, I didn't know what he was doing. I'd never heard the song before. And it was one of these things where it's the verse that you don't know. Mm. And I'm thinking, what are you doing, Dad? You know, you've got all these great songs up your sleeve. Why are you singing this dirge? Mm. 
and and something I wish I'd never felt, you know, embarrassment that you feel, oh, Dad, you know, all my friends are here. And and I remember going, all right, Dad, all right, and sort of thinking, getting him, just sing a Cockney song and we can all join in. Yeah. But he got through the verse and he and he started singing, we'll keep a welcome in the hillsides. And, he, and he, he'd gone away and learned it. To learn a Welsh song. And yeah. to honour the other it side. It was in Wales. It was in Wales, yeah. yeah. So that was that was a moment, but I didn't pick my wedding day after all that. But perhaps even more precious is that is the kids. Got two kids, Harriet and Charlie. And so Harriet was about three and a half when Charlie was born. And Harriet was always saying she wanted a sister. And we were saying, well, you never know. We don't know. And you didn't in those days. You didn't know what sex it was going to be. Um, Thank God you didn't want a puppy. <laughs> exactly. Maybe if she had, life would have been a lot simpler. Um, <laughs> But she was absolutely convinced that she wanted a girl and I knew that that's what she wanted. And then Charlie was born in the middle of the night, born about two o'clock in the morning, and I was at the hospital and I came home. And then when Harriet heard me home, she came running to the top of the stairs and she said, has mummy had the baby? Has mummy had the baby? And I said, yes, she has, she has. And she said, what is it? And I said, it's a boy. And she said, that's just what I wanted. Ah, that's lovely. Bless her. Kids are very good at knowing when to say the right things. Yeah. That's beautiful. So you're going to put your children... Well, that moment, because Charlie's been born, so that's a great thing. And Harriet showed who she was. Yes. And also, suddenly you see this tiny little child and it's relying on you for everything. And then you suddenly see it take this amazing step of going, well, I know what I need to say at this moment. All those decisions are made in this tiny little young brain. Yeah. And she has the fantastic ability to realise that the important thing to say that, at that moment is to back you up. Yeah. And that's what she does. So yeah. she takes over, really. Yeah. She becomes the responsible yeah, one. Yeah, it's great. It was an amazing moment. I think if you asked her now, she'd say she definitely wanted to go. Or a puppy second. <laughs> yeah. So that lovely moment, that lovely moment with your daughter Harriet is going to go into the time capsule. And you can go back there and you can stand at the bottom of those stairs. Yes. And see that again. So now we come to... The more difficult item to put in, I think. What is the item that you have not enjoyed in your life that you would like to lock away? Well, perhaps we sort of touched on it, almost stumbled across it by accident. And that is that moment of embarrassment. I'm not someone that gets embarrassed about myself in everyday life. I could walk down the street, trip over, people laugh and I, I can get up, make a joke of it. I'm not worried about making mistakes. But in that sort of performance moment, Dad never f seemed someone that, that ever had embarrassment. No. You never f do. I've got a good friend, Tom, who's in this wonderful charity show that I do, mm. the Pepper Foundation. It's an amazing charity that gives hospice at home care for children in the locality. It's an incredible charity. And Tom is a great performer, and he, but he also does loads of other things in the street. He, he runs this, his own charity called Electric Umbrella, that is about breaking down perceptions of educationally challenged adults through music. Mm. And he performs with people in situations where people, other people might feel awkward. And what he does is he just brings out the best in those people. Mm. And I said to him, our dad used to do stuff like yeah. that and work with 
children with disabilities um, and entertain them and that sort of thing. I remember doing that with him as a teenager and I found it difficult. I had to really follow his lead. Yeah. It was completely outside of my experience. But he was never embarrassed. He would burst into the room and just make an enormous amount of noise and just drag people along with him. Yeah, and I think that, that you know, I think most people would look at me and say that I, I'm, I'm a very confident person. And, and in many situations I am very confident but equally, often I'm, I'm not. And in that making a show of yourself moment, I can feel that occasionally. Um, not so much in a social situation, but actually in a when you're put on the spot, I'll, I'll sort of shrink back a little bit. Mm. And, I, and I think it made me think, there have been many moments like that, but we were talking about that moment when Dad got up to sing at the wedding, and I didn't have that time to just sit back and enjoy it. No. What I did was I, oh, Dad, Dad, stop. And it's strange, isn't it, when you suddenly lose the trust in someone yeah. that you've trusted implicitly yeah. all your life. I didn't trust him not to embarrass me. No, no but I mean, I he embarrassed us all oh, the time. But, uh, but generally, that embarrassment would lead to people laughing. Yes. I wasn't used to him being serious. No. But we never saw him embarrassed. We never saw him embarrassed by what he was doing. No. But we do have that occasionally, both of us. I mean, yeah. I think we... Well, I think, I think our mum was quite shy and self-effacing, so I think that we inherit both sides of that. And I think it's quite an interesting juxtaposition of, of characters. You know, we've got extreme confidence and, and prefer to get up there and do it, whilst also knowing that at times, oh, maybe we shouldn't. You know, yes. Maybe some of us got that side a bit more than others. Mike. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Not been tested. No. You've never found anything you've been embarrassed about yet? No, not yet. No. I wish that I'd been able to be less embarrassed when I was younger. The more life goes on, the less embarrassed I become by it. Yeah. The more I realise that actually it doesn't matter. No, no, and I think that's the thing that I, I understand. And so in this show I, I, I do the auditions and I watch somebody who was really not able to sing particularly well and really struggled, but was making this incredible effort to get up and audition. Mm. And inwardly, I was feeling awkward as I was doing it. And I was feeling, I was worrying about what other people were thinking and all these things. And afterwards, I thought about it and thought, it was an amazing thing that they did. And I should have enjoyed that moment, not had those feelings of awkwardness. And so more recently, when I've been in that situation, I've been able to remember that and actually just let all that stuff go and focus on all the positives about that and not think, worry about what other people are thinking and not worry about, is it good by other people's standards? It's amazing because of that person's standards. Yes. And actually appreciate it for what it is. And in fact, those things can be more compelling or moving or powerful than somebody who's highly trained and yeah. highly skilled. You could admire their skills, but you're not necessarily moved by them. Yeah. But seeing somebody have the courage to step outside of their comfort zone and do something that they really would never normally do can be really moving, I think. Absolutely. And so that's a lesson that I continue to learn. And I think it's just about not worrying about what other people think, because I think ultimately... Other people are going to think what they're going to think, no matter what you do. Yes. So you might as well just do the best you can do. I agree completely. So what are we going to put into the time capsule? Well, I'm really struggling with it. I think, actually, let's put that moment in that audition, because I wouldn't want to put that moment when Dad sang, because it's still also one of my fondest memories. Yes. So 
although those feelings were there, but it was those feelings of awkwardness when you think I'm worried about what someone else is thinking about someone else rather than just enjoying that person. Yes. And in a way, prejudging that situation, thinking, I know what everybody else is thinking. Yeah. They're thinking, oh, this person's an old fool, or, or yeah. this person doesn't know what they're doing. And yeah. being embarrassed for them yes. before actually discovering what they're really going to do. Yeah. So you're prejudging something. Yeah. So that sense of embarrassment, I think we all have that. We'll all remember a time where somebody started something, we've all gone, oh, no, here they go. This is going to be awful. And then actually, it can be surprisingly amazing. Yeah. I think my wife would know that feeling. <laughs> what, three times a week and twice on Saturday? Yeah, well, most days. What's he doing now? Yeah. And she's right on many occasions yeah. that I am being embarrassing. But actually, in my experience, the reward you get for taking the risk of being embarrassing, the rewards when you're not are well worth the embarrassment. I... I absolutely see that I've seen that with you I've seen that with our dad I've seen that with my friend Tom absolutely and many others and, and I, hopefully on occasions myself as well yeah no, I've seen you be very courageous with all sorts of things so I think yes let's take that embarrassment at, at the potential embarrassment of other people yeah let's lock that away put it in there you don't have to worry about that again that's fantastic so we've got one final thing to put into the time capsule. Let's finish got, on a high note. Let's go soaring up. What is it going to be? Well, again, I think that I end up coming full circle to the thing, the constants in my life. And the constants in my life are family, friends, music, football, the law. And those are, those are the things that's pretty much defined me. And whilst, of course, Wembley also had Live Aid in it, the thing that first made me think about it was football. So I'll say that ticks the football box. The moment with Harriet is the family box. The old Bailey is the law box. So I still think I've got to do something about music. Mm. So I try to think something that had a profound effect on me. Mm. And as you will know, I'm a lifelong fan of Bob Marley. So how did that come about? <laughs> Gosh, isn't it amazing? Everything comes back to Dad because Dad had a case where there was a client of his who was going to prison for a very long time and allowed us to have his record collection. And in that record collection was an album called Rasta Man Vibration by Bob Marley, which is not one of his more famous albums. And I quite liked it. But it wasn't necessarily the biggest thing. I was into all sorts of everything. Mm. Ian Jury, The Stranglers, Disco, ABBA, Joe Jackson. But in 1980, in April 1980, my favourite person at the time, Joe Jackson, was announced and he was playing a concert supporting Bob Marley and the Wailers. Mm at the Crystal Palace Bowl. <laughs> and we got tickets, me and my friend Al, because we wanted to see Joe Jackson. And um, we went to this concert, and it's, it's around a lake. It's an open-air theatre around a lake. And I was standing there, and the place was full of black guys and a lot of rastas. And I remember this rasta guy saying to me, you know, what... What's a white boy like you doing at a Bob Marley gig? And I said to him, I'm not at a Bob Marley gig. I'm at a Joe Jackson gig. <laughs> and he said, who's Joe Jackson? And I told him and I said, you're going to love him. I said, he's going to blow Bob Marley out the water. And Joe came on and was 
as brilliant as Joe always is. And the guy turned around to me and said, yeah, you know, not bad. He's very good, but you wait till you see Bob Marley. And Bob Marley came on and played two and a half hours. And my life was never the same again. Mm. And the next day, me and Al got a bus up to here, got a bus up to London. And I went out and I bought all of Bob Marley's nine remaining albums. And that was it. And I became a massive, massive Bob Marley fan. And again, lots of songs about justice and injustice Mm-hmm. and unfairness and all those things that are part of my life. And it, it's always intrigued me why a bloke from Kingston, Jamaica, singing about injustice in Kingston, Jamaica, resonated with me so completely. Mm. But he did. And who sings about religion, um, I, he sings about Jar and God, and I'm not that, but he sings about one love, which is a concept that I completely get. And all of these things really had a massive impact on me. And, and they sort of changed my approach to life, my, my view of relationships, relations, because we weren't necessarily exposed to a multicultural upbringing. But I, was, I got my multiculturalism in the first instance through Bob Marley. Mm. And I became known by, as everybody. I was the Bob Marley fan. I was the bloke that would always be going on about Bob Marley. And then as you come much, much further in my life and, and I'm, I move into the International Division of the Crown Prosecution Service and I start to go to the Caribbean as well as other places and I'm a lot older and I'm wearing a suit and I'm representing the British government and suddenly <laughs> they couldn't believe it was a guy like you. How come you know those lyrics? And I went to Jamaica and my driver, who was about my age, drove me down to, to downtown Kingston where I went to see the the director of public prosecutions there. And then he was driving me back uptown and it started to rain and there was a roadblock. We were just stuck in traffic. And I said to him, um, do you like old school reggae? And he said, yeah, I love old school reggae. And I said, when I was coming to Jamaica, all my life I thought, you know, Jamaica's been a place I've wanted to come to. And I tried to keep it professional, but I have made a playlist. <laughs> I said, and as we're stuck in the car, is there any chance you could just put this playlist on? So while we're in in Kingston... I can and, listen to these songs. And I started playing this playlist. It was all other reggae songs that I got into after Bob Marley, and, as well as Bob Marley. And this guy was saying, wow, you really know your stuff. And we were having a great time and bonding. And he, he said, right, I'm going to get you... He's, you know, we had a really busy time over there, really busy days... He said, there's, a, there's something in Trenchtown. It's from the lyrics of um, No Woman, No Cry, in the government's yard in Trenchtown. Mm-hmm. That is the council houses that he lived in. The government's yard is this block that were owned by the government. And, yes. And he said, that's open to the public, but you're working when it's open. So, and he got them to open it up early for me to go in, and I got a little guided tour. And then I went to Bob Marley's house one evening which is turned into the Bob Marley Museum. Mm. And I was telling people, I saw Bob Marley in concert. I saw him in 1980. Yeah, I was there. I saw him. (laughs) I saw him live. And we were going around, and the last room, there was a room where had his guitars on the wall, and pictures. And I walked in, and the first picture on the right was a picture taken from behind Bob Marley on the stage of the Crystal Palace Bowl, looking out. And I said to everyone, look, there's a picture of me in the Bob Marley Museum. Look, look, just there, just to the right of that tree. That's me there. <laughs> and so I 
falsely claim. I'm in the Bob Marley Museum. So that concert, it really did change a lot of things for me and continues to do so. I went to um, Grenada. There was a lot of people there and there was a, a senior police officer. And I had a friend who lived in Grenada and we'd finished work late at night um, it had been all day, all night, and we finished. And we went out for a meal, and then someone said, "Let's go for a drink." And it was like ten o'clock at night, and we were in this bar, and we were playing pool. And this friend of mine, who is a someone who had grown up in Grenada, had been exiled from Grenada when there were political problems, lived in Orpington where we grew up, and then went back to Grenada. But we kept in touch. And this police officer guy came up and said, "So, Beverly." What do you most remember about a young Patrick Stevens? And she said, that's easy, she said. She said, if I think of Patrick, I think of Bob Marley. See, that's funny, because I thought you were going to say he had a really good-looking older brother. (laughs) That's brilliant. Of course, the final question would be, how does Bob Marley like his donuts? We're jamming. Absolutely. Pat, it's been absolutely brilliant talking to you about the things you'd like to put in your time capsule. They're in there now, so anytime you want to go back and have a look, you're welcome. I could spend a lot of time down there. You have been listening to a special episode of My Time Capsule with me, Mike Fenton-Stevens, and my brother, Patrick Stevens, the lawyer son of Harry Stevens and Crystal Palace fan, Bob Marley lover, devoted father, and proof that this idea works, I hope. Maybe it's something you'd like to try with one of your family. Like me, you may discover things about your nearest and dearest that you never bothered to find out before. If you enjoyed this episode, please do subscribe for lots of new releases coming soon and a large collection of lovely episodes already released. It's available on almost all podcast providers. Most of them will let you rate the show to encourage others to listen, so we appreciate it if you do that. And some even let you leave a comment or full review. A little more effort required, obviously, so that's something that we really, really appreciate, especially when people say nice things about us. We can't reply, unfortunately, in case we're tempted to stalk you. But we are grateful, I promise. If you do want to chat with us about the podcast, or anything in fact, then you can do it if you follow me or my time capsule on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. We try to reply to all communications and are delighted to say that all of them so far have been charming and enjoyable. Thank you very much for that. The My Time Capsule theme tune is available on Spotify to download or stream. It was written by Pass the Peas Music and other guys of our talented producer, John Fenton-Stevens, who produced this cast-off production for Acast, although, as I say, it's available everywhere. Thanks very much for listening, and just to remind my brother of happy times, and for myself, really, because I enjoy doing it, and, of course, if you're thinking of crossing the Severn River, do remember, or just adjust the reverb, We'll keep a welcome in the hillside We'll keep a welcome in the vale. This land you knew will still be singing when you come home again to Wales. This land of song will keep a welcome and with a love that never fails. We'll kiss away each hour of your life When you come home again to Wales We'll kiss away each hour of 
night when you come home again to Wales. Bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.